Hello and welcome back to the podcast. Uh, my name is Anna. I'm Eva. And um, we're recording this on the 1st of June, which is Children's Day in the former Soviet bloc. Uh, today, we have two fantastic guests um, from an organization called POMOTS. Eva, do you want to introduce POMOTS? Yes, I mean, I'm very excited to hear from our guests, so I will try to keep it very brief. But, you know, in terms of um, the name itself, uh, POMOT stands for Polish Migrants Organized for Change. Um, so that gives away quite a lot already. Um, and it's spelled with a C at the end, so it can be a bit confusing because, uh, you know, if we were to stick to English pronunciation, it should be POMOK. Um, but the reason why we say POMOTS is um, it's also a word uh, in Polish, um, so spelled with the C, it means um, help. And um, well, pomoc pomoc does exactly that. So it uh, it helps uh, it helps people uh, living in the UK. Um, but it also runs different campaigns to um, encourage democratic participation. Uh, there's a campaign called She Votes. Um, a lot of these campaigns are actually focused around women and um, LGBT plus communities because these are the people who are um, actively discouraged by society <laughs> to participate. So POMOS does the reverse. It tries to encourage uh, participation from these groups, um, which I find um, inspiring. I guess the last thing to mention is that it also uses very interesting techniques and methodologies. Um, it uh, encourages creativity, it uses art. Um, I don't want to give away too much, so I might just introduce our guests now. Um, today we have the founders of uh, POMOTS with us. So, um, Magda Fabiańczyk and Marzena Żukowska. And, uh, yeah, we will be talking about Polish people in the UK, um, who are Poles in the UK, uh, what issues are, are they slash we facing, um, and, um, you know, what is, what is it like to be organising with, with Poles in the UK as well. Um, right, without further ado, should we do introductions? So, um, Magda and Marzena, do you want to each introduce yourselves, tell us your... Yeah, your pronouns and uh, a, a tiny bit about your background, your story and how you ended up here. Hi, uh, great to be on the show. I'm Marzena Zhukowska. I use they, them pronouns in English. In Polish, it's a bit more complicated because we have an incredibly gendered language. Um, I am the co-founder and co-director of POMOT, was born in Białystok, Poland, grew up in Chicago, somehow found myself here in the UK um, organizing with the Polish community. Other things I do, I'm also a communications strategist. I'm a gamer. I live up in Liverpool and I am learning to take care of houseplants as a person who is uh, recently living by myself. Uh, so, uh, my name is Magda Fabianczyk and I use she, her pronouns. Uh, I was born in Katowice and I studied economics when 20 years ago I decided to come to London to earn some money and go to India. Uh, and, and I stayed and um, I quit uh, the university in Poland, started to study contemporary art. And my background uh, is in contemporary art and education. 
Uh, I teach experience design at Central St. Martins and, um, and I used to teach socially engaged art and I've worked on uh, quite a few um, socially engaged projects, mostly in Poland, UK, and also uh, quite a lot in India. Uh, from that sort of, uh, that kind of naturally moved me to activism in 2016, where I started organizing as Jewuche London uh, with my colleagues. We've organized quite a lot of protests outside of the Polish embassy uh, in fight for, um, for our reproductive rights and also uh, free courts, free media, and so on. Thank you for sharing. So we wanted to start with a question that me and Eva actually discussed in our very first episodes. And, you know, we, we gave our answers or were curious to hear about yours. Like how the experience of migration influence your politics? So my immigrant experience is, is the thing that's largely politicized me. So when my family moved to Chicago um, in 1996, I was six and a half. We went on tourist visas and then I ended up being undocumented along with my mom and my brother for the next 14 to 16 years. Actually, my brother is still is still undocumented and we're continuing the, the, the fight for his um, you know, rights as an immigrant in the country where he, he grew up from the age of 15. And we came in 96 from Poland, which was a time that my mom has interestingly described as, as a time when everything was available in stores post, you know, post the kind of capitalism on speed that was introduced, um, you know, after the Berlin Wall fell. A time when uh, you know you could you could get anything in stores, but no one had any money. Versus what was going on prior to that, which is nothing was in stores and people did have money. So it was an interesting time, I think, for a lot of Polish immigrants. A lot of folks were struggling, um, especially in in the part of Poland uh, on the eastern border with Belarus, where I was from. And so growing up as an immigrant in Chicago was was an experience, especially undocumented. Where I kind of realized how little access to to rights I had. I mean, when I was a when I was a teenager, I realized that you know I I wouldn't. It would be really hard for me to to go to university with with the cost of edu you know education in in the U.S. Couldn't get a driver's license, and you're kind of living with the fear that you know someone might discover that you're undocumented, and um, you might face deportation. So. That experience um, for me was sort of at the beginning of when I really came into, into my political awakening, it was the time of the dreamers movement in the United States, right? So it was a lot of young immigrants like myself who you know, had grown up in the US, it had been their home for many, many years. Really, they, they may not have even remembered their home countries and yet they, they didn't have full rights um, in the US. Um, and so for me, that experience was, was quite formative, right? I was able to connect my, my individual experiences of growing up undocumented to kind of the, the more systemic issues of injustice that immigrants face and, and how racialized the immigrant, and how racialized the immigration system is in the US where my experiences growing up undocumented in a big city like Chicago are far different from you know the experiences if you're black or brown at the US-Mexico border, which is so highly militarized. And then my mom also did domestic work. She did house cleaning for, for two decades. And you know, I, I spent most of my summers going to work with her. And 
you know, having then worked later for the National Domestic Workers Alliance, I was I was kind of able to to connect the the immigration experiences to workers' rights. So for me, it's the the politics is very much personal. So when I came to the UK twenty years ago, that was before Poland uh, joined EU. Uh, I worked in a lot of uh, precarious um, sectors, such as hospitality and cleaning. I didn't really know my rights, so there was lots of cases where I wasn't paid, or where um, I was underpaid, or once I had to strip down. Uh, so the, 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 had I known my rights at that time, uh, I would be able to protect myself. And I didn't know about any organizations uh, that were supporting migrants or that I could organize with. And I guess my kind of awakening, in a way, um, happened in, in three stages. The first was when I joined um, Political Awakening. The first one was when I joined um, Art University. And it was a very rebellious university and students were engaged with a lot of protests. So um, that was the first time when I guess I met activists. Uh, in, in, in London, and we started Organize Together. And then after I graduated, um, there was a group of artists that run Nowhere in Bethnal Green, Nowhere Space, and uh, the main two were Karen Mirza and Brett, Brett Butler. And they organized a lot of meetings and um, that were focusing around screenings and discussions. And it was a lot to do with migrants' rights, uh, not just in the UK, but more globally. And then the third part, uh, I guess that would be when we started organizing for reproductive rights uh, in the UK, when uh, um, Peace, Law and Justice Party um, took power in Poland and they started to attack human rights in many different aspects. Um, and I guess what was quite important as well was that when I lived in Poland, I lived in uh, ethnically at least quite monolithic society. And it was quite um, interesting to be part, to, to start to live in London, where suddenly uh, you meet people uh, that are that are coming from very diverse communities and all sorts of parts of the world. And that was something I guess that very much shaped my politics. That's that's very interesting. Thank you for sharing the stories because it's um, it's really uh, usually so many things that come into migration that. Uh, that are hard to even imagine, I guess. Um, and we ourselves sometimes don't give ourselves credit for for what we went through, especially in the like early stages when you kind of still don't know your rights, as you as you said, Magda. And um, would you like to tell us now um, more about Pomots? Would you like to maybe um, give us some examples of the campaigns and uh, how the idea originated as well? So we have three main pillars of our work. The first one is to do with direct support. Um, the, third, the, se the second one with political education and the third one with campaigning. Um, and all three are very much connected. A lot of people that are not that politically engaged, they come to us for um, advice on the immigra their immigration status. A lot of uh, cases uh, are to do with settled status. Um, or for example, um, asking questions about the workers' rights or housing rights. But we also have people who are very uh, politically active and they join us already as activists, as volunteers. POMOTS currently is, we envision it as a, as a sort of grassroots political home uh, for Polish migrant women 
and also gender non-conforming people in the UK to be able to organize together, right? Organize towards dignity, power, justice, these big values, these big ideals, but also, you know, on, on, on concrete projects together and, and campaigns to make the lives of both Polish communities, but really also all migrant communities um, here in the UK better. And we work on so many different projects. I'm sure that we can probably popcorn between Magda and myself to, to name a few. Um, and the, the way we really got started was on the heels of the, of the 2019 parliamentary elections in Poland. So that's really how Magda and I met. It was activist love at first sight in some ways. Um, we both realized that we were working through similar methodologies. Magda more from the contemporary art background and I was coming from grassroots community organizing in the US, but both of us really wanted to, to be working with, with communities here in the UK, particularly Polish communities in a real bottom up way um, to be able to build political power. And so after the 2019 parliamentary elections, we had all, uh, we, but both of us, along with, with a number of other um, women activists, founded a, a group called Polonia Gosuja, which translates to Polish Diaspora Votes. And we were really trying to activate the Polish diaspora um, around these elections because we saw it as honestly as an opportunity to, um, I'll say to, to shift the political landscape in Poland from what it is now um, to, to something better. But out of those elections, we ended up seeing some really interesting trends that, that actually dictated how we started to organize. And largely it was around how active Polish women were and how active Polish women abroad were becoming. Um, and so we really wanted to build on these trends of, of Polish women kind of veering more towards um, progressive values, kind of voting from our progressive political parties. We wanted to really kind of um, capitalize on that, um, knowing that if, if, if they were getting engaged, they'd, they'd most likely engage their, their families, their partners, um, their communities as well. So that was really the, the focus on, on Polish women and, and gender non-conforming people as well, because we believe that gender is a social construct. Maybe you want to say shortly about some campaign? Yeah, so uh, we have the ongoing She Votes campaign, which is uh, intended to get um, Polish uh, women and, and their families more engaged in local and, and general elections in the UK. So we started doing the work um, last year in 2021, but a lot of the same tactics that political parties are using, but for completely nonpartisan purposes, trying to get as many Polish people uh, registered to vote, understanding what their local councils can do for them, and if they're interested, uh, having the tools to be able to, to stand in local elections. Um, we're, we're also uh, running a campaign with the Young Europeans Network called Our Home, Our Vote, which is focused on uh, expanding residence-based voting rights, which is a, a wonky way of, of saying, um, making sure that if, if you live in a place and you are part of that community, that you have um, the right to influence decisions that, that are made and and be able to, to vote and engage with the democratic process. So currently Scotland and Wales have residence-based voting rights. Um, so if you're an immigrant who's living in Scotland, you can vote in both 
local elections and then also elections for, um, you know, the Scottish Parliament. England doesn't have anything like that. Um, ideally, we'd like to make sure that all immigrants, regardless of their immigration status, can, can vote wherever they are. Um, but so we're slowly building up to that. And it was actually Labour Party policy in 2019, which I helped campaign on, it was in the manifesto. So uh, there's glimpses of uh, the demand for residence-based voting rights. Oh, you want to help so, us come slowly, to the... Slowly reaching the mainstream, but yeah, there's a long way to go. Do you want to come to the Labour Party conference in, in Liverpool in September and try to get it back into the manifesto? I mean, that's what I do with my life, sadly. So yes, I will be there. <laughs> okay, see you in Liverpool. <laughs> And I think one thing to add to what Marjana said as well is that we've noticed that uh, people, uh, they, participation is not enough. They want to also shape those processes with us. So at POMODS, most of the processes are co-created with uh, groups of people that these projects are addressing. Thanks for sharing that. I was also wondering, because obviously the organization is focused on, on women and other marginalized genders. And I don't know if you, if you have any thoughts about like how the experience of migration is, is gendered. This is such an interesting question. I mean, it, I don't know if there's a simple answer for it. The experience of migration is very much gendered, but it's gendered in, in ways that are somewhat unexpected. I mean, under you know, the Home Secretary Priti Patel's hostile environment um, policy towards migrants in the UK, we've very much seen that young black and brown men have become the kind of face of immigration enforcement. And it's, it's, very, it's very convenient for the UK government because those are groups of people who are easier to demonize. I mean, we saw this with, for example, age assessing asylum seekers and kind of trying to prove that, you know, these young men, they're not actually kids, they're adults, and they should be, you know, treated as the as the criminals. So I think that the narrative is very much gendered, but I think it's gendered in the direction of, you know, the, the people who are trying to come into this country are largely men of color. When in reality, I think when you pull back the curtain, you you see that who is coming to the UK is a lot more complex and it's incredibly diverse. I mean, globally, we've seen that some of the fastest growing industries that, that immigrants work in are service industries and they're feminized industries. They're like Mike that was saying, their hospitality, their house cleaning, their care work. Um, it's the NHS where, where migrants are um, kind of taking on a lot of, um, a lot of those positions. So I think, the question of is, is migration gendered is complex and is interesting, right? I think the, the even more interesting question is how is it gendered for what purpose, right? For whom is are certain narratives convenient, right? And who's getting to shape those narratives? Um, in this case, it's, it's the people who are at the forefront of the hostile environment. Yeah, thanks for that. That was that was really interesting. And like, yes, it's true what you say about like, you know, feminist industries, like a lot of like, stereotypes around like Polish people are that it's of all like cleaners, you know, I mean, not just in the UK, like in Germany as well, there is like associated with like care work, cleaning, right? Very sort of like majority women industries. Mm -hmm. I, I would also say that there's this also expectation that migrant is someone that is has to be productive and and useful. And I think that's very problematic as well, because we are seeing, for example, 
you know, I mean, people experiencing mental health issues and suddenly becoming undesirable migrants in this country, just to add to the kind of hostile environment. Uh, that yeah. was also what I was thinking about, uh, about the whole thing, how migrants should be deserving of, you have to be deserving in order to enter that country. You cannot just simply have that freedom of movement. You just suddenly have to prove yourself to be um, worthy of <laughs> crossing the border. Yeah, I always, I always have many mixed feelings about, you know, campaigns that talk about, oh, I'm a migrant, I'm an NHS doctor, or, you know, I'm a migrant and I'm a kind of, award-winning whatever right it's like that's that's great that is shiny stereotypes that you know good for them but you know also like i am a migrant i'm disabled i'm a migrant i'm a single mom benefits like these experiences should also be heard uh, yes especially that a lot of people that come to this country their right to work is is, is removed i feel like we can have an entire podcast just talking about um narratives related to to immigration because i think these are really key ones and kind of drawing the the parallel between the us and the uk i mean you know living here the last four years what i'm seeing increasingly happen is the uk system not only immigration but even even the welfare state social services healthcare moving more towards this kind of neoliberal privatized system that we have in the US that very much values profits over people. And in that kind of an environment, your worth as a human being is, is automatically dictated, dictated by how much you're able to produce. And exactly as all of you were saying, you know, if, if, you're, if you're disabled, if you're not able to work as efficiently, um, if you're not able to be exploited as efficiently, then you're worthless to the system, right? That the system treats you as expendable. Yes, um, and I guess there's one more irony to this, which is you can never really win um, as a migrant because if you are um, not productive, if you are not uh, exploited enough, as you were saying, um, then you're obviously accused of um, kind of, yeah, <laughs> relying on the system, uh, on the taxes that uh, people who are citizens here pay, and obviously being like a mm, burden uh, that needs to be gotten rid of, as if you're something, yeah, like like a thing that should be just thrown out. But then, if you are actually this successful migrant, right, the desirable one that is productive and that is um, doing that job in NHS or whatever, then you're also not really um, <laughs> seen as a, you can be seen as a threat, as someone who's stealing the job, who's um, not really uh, deserving of it again. So, you know, this is again um, an issue that is, that is more like connected to the systemic systemic um, problems, right? To the whole scapegoating, looking for people to kind of blame uh, for the issues that are not related to migration, but it's easy to just um, go into that narrative, shape it that way and create that hostility between people that would not otherwise exist there. So we have to be very wary of that. We have to remember that there's no winning uh, for a lot of migrants. So I guess what is often needed is actually um, pointing out to all these things that migrants 
um, how migrants benefit the country that they live in, they contribute to the communities that they live in, they contribute also with their own perspectives, ideas. So, you know, um, obviously not to go again into that um, sphere of uh, trying to prove that people are deserving, because that necessarily requires um, creating some kind of list of, of things that are there to take off. Uh, whereas there should be no list like that. You yeah, know, like what, what what do we know about Poles in the UK? Do we have, you know, we have some number estimates, right? Like, do you know which industries they're in? Do you know, like, the different ways of migration? We do. In terms of numbers, we're still waiting on that, on that damn census data that's supposed to come out this summer. So we'll definitely have better better statistics. In terms of numbers... I mean, at this point, it's hard to say at, it, at its peak, I believe it was almost above a million Polish migrants in, in the entirety of the UK. We suspect that after, you know, after the, the Brexit deadline, after um, COVID, a lot of people did go back. So those numbers could have dropped to possibly the 800,000. But we, we won't have good statistics um, until later. I'll let Magda speak to the industries because I don't actually know 100%. Um, in terms of waves of migration, I mean, the, the UK and Poland have had kind of, I mean, they've had a very long history of, of migration um, from Poland to the UK, even, even pre-World War II. But of course, the big, the big kind of wave of refugees was, was absolutely um, during and after World War II. Um, we also had a big wave in the 1980s when martial law was introduced in Poland. A lot of people were, were fleeing for political reasons, a lot of um, intellectuals, a lot of artists, um, a lot of people who were engaged with the solidarity movement. Um, you had the 90s, which, you know, many people, the 90s, which are described in Poland as capitalism on speed. So you had a lot of people who were, who were leaving literally because it was just really difficult to survive. Um, and then you had uh, the kind of big wave uh, post 2004 when Poland entered the European Union. And I believe that has actually contributed to that to that biggest chunk, right? So that was a between 2004 and now, it was a really massive jump. I think that maybe the important thing to also highlight is that uh, Polish migrants are very translocal. In a way, that's that's the kind of term I think used by artist Katrin Boom quite a lot. Uh, in the way that they shift between Poland and the UK back and forth quite a lot. So what is happening in Poland is quite present in terms of the politics that are happening in Poland are quite present in the life of Polish migrants here in the UK and the other way around. Um, and I think that, you know, looking at, for example, who we reach out and who come through our door, it's a very diverse group of people. We try to segment Polish migrants because it'd be easier for us in a way uh, to sort of think that, okay, people work here and they are like this, but actually we've learned that they are very diverse groups and they come to the UK for all sorts of different reasons. Some come because um, they, they, they come to work uh, and others because they want to study, um, others because they want to travel. There is a lot of, uh, I think, stereotyping. Uh, we've at least came across a lot of stereotyping as well in the research, in academic research, thinking that um, Polish migrants um, are uh, only economic migrants and they come here because they need to work. Well, that's not true. Uh, we know that uh, a lot of people come here because um, they, um, 
they are also interesting in, in, in an experience of living in a multicultural society. So there's lots of, lots of different reasons. I will add that in terms of voting patterns, because we've, we've had a really hard time tracking down any data on how uh, Polish migrants are, are engaging politically in this country. And it's simply because the data doesn't exist. Um, what we have been able to find is more general for all EU citizens. So for example, we know that EU citizens have the lowest voter registration rates of all kind of social and demographic groups in the UK. Um, we suspect that Eastern Europeans and, and among them Polish people are probably veered towards the, the lower end as well. So even lower than <laughs> the lower group of, of EU citizens. Um, and that's actually something that we are actively uh, trying to change in our communities. So there is also lots of misconceptions uh, out there. Um, we've heard a lot about Polish migrants being uh, inactive, uh, disengaged with politics. Um, and and I, we believe that this is not true. Uh, we've seen a lot of interest from the Polish community. Uh, what we also noticed is that it's very difficult to find information about, for example, local elections. And I think uh, it's a kind of two-way process um, that we need to improve um, the level of information um, that is, that is uh, targeting Polish community. And then we will also see more engagement from the from Polish community. Yeah, and like, you know, recently fair play, I saw some like labor ads for local elections or in, in Polish. Uh, so I mean, I guess you are starting to like notice us, but in 2016, for example, the only like ads in Polish I was getting from political campaigns were I think from Britain first, mm. trying to like attract Poles in the UK to the far right, mm. um, which I thought was also like an interesting dynamic. But yeah, I mean, uh, you know, there is, there is well, up to a million of us. So we are like we, we can be we can be influential in many places if we mobilize. Uh, absolutely. And I think you know sometimes it's also, I mean, in Walton Forest this year, uh, we wanted to what we produced uh, for the Polish community were this sort of for, for three boroughs, Ealing, Walton Forest, and Lewisham. We've sent to quite a lot of Polish uh, citizens uh, that we've identified from the uh, voter register list. Uh, we've sent them letters informing about local elections, that they have a right to vote, that they already registered, and, and also summarizing uh, programs of, of, the, of the political parties, main political parties. And for example, in Walton Forest, uh, we couldn't find all the programs, they don't exist. So it's very difficult as well, you know, for other migrants to, or other citizens to find that information if parties don't uh, produce them. I think these points are so important because, um, again, it shows systemic issues. And we also might suspect that these are there on purpose, that actually it's not very encouraged for migrants to be involved politically. And uh, there are obstacles that need overcoming, actively kind of fighting with in order to create these opportunities. And also, as you both show, um, like, 
if you come to a foreign country, you don't know the candidates just from, I don't know, your neighbors, because you haven't lived in that area before. You don't know the record of the politicians that are there. So you do need to actually reach out for information. But if they not, do not exist, then there's no way for you to actually get politically involved. So again, it's not necessarily that we just are not interested in politics. It's more of why are there so many barriers for us to get involved, right? It's kind of funny because we found that Polish migrants occupy this strange space where, you know, uh, more leftist parties and centrist parties see us as, as you know, too conservative, right? Because of the, the Catholicism or what have you. And then the Tories see us as, as migrants. So of course we're gonna be liberal. Of course we're gonna be voting uh, in support of, of migrants' rights, which means we, we occupy this kind of no zone <laughs> where no one's really um, going deep to engage with um, Polish and, and by extension, I would say Eastern European um, communities as well. And like, how would you describe the politics of the diaspora? I mean, obviously, obviously it's very diverse, but like looking at Polish elections, like voting patterns are quite different if you look at, you know, Poland itself and for example, polls in the UK, right? And, and like, almost like more polarized, right? More sort of like extreme, if you like use that word on both sides. Well, it's interesting because historically the, the Polish diaspora in the UK has voted for the opposition, right? So the... So it means that in 2015, the majority of the Polish diaspora in the UK actually did vote for the Law and Justice Party, which is interesting. Uh, one of our activist slash academic comrades, um, Marta Kotfas, pointed that out to me before. But the fact that the Law and Justice Party has been in power for what now, seven, eight years, has meant that the Polish diaspora has largely been voting for... Um, for the opposition, which is, you know, which is the, the centrist party, Platforma Patelska and or other parties. Um, but also like quite a strong Levita left vote, but at the same time as strong votes for like whatever Janusz Korwin-Mika is up to. Fair points all around. So I guess it is a big uh, fuck you to peace all around um, from every direction. Are we allowed to swear on this podcast? Yeah. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> so we encourage it. <laughs> There's a lot to swear about. Yeah. But um, I do think it's notable, and Magda hopefully will agree with me, but it is notable that when you look at the largest social and political movement that Poland has seen since the fall of the Berlin Wall, it has, it has been led by women. It's the Polish women's strike and many of the organizations, movements, sub-movements that have formed around it, and really this kind of um, reclaiming of, of feminism, right? And kind of remixing it for the Eastern European Polish experience. And so for us, like the kind of activism that we've seen in Poland led by women is, is exactly the same kind of activism we've seen here led by Polish women. In, October 2020, at the height of the pandemic, when the Law and Justice Party once again, uh, you know, went ahead to try and further restrict abortion rights in Poland, we had 2,000 people in front of the Polish embassy. That was massive. We, we, one, we weren't expecting it, and two, 
like we knew that people were gathering. So we, we quickly needed to, to spring into action as kind of a coalition effort of so many activist groups to try and like make sure that people can protest safely, you know, providing masks, hand sanitizer, attempting to make people social distance. Um, and so really like the investing in Polish women, investing in Polish LGBTQ folks, these are the people who have been at the forefront of the, of the resistance for the last few years. Sorry, I just add as well that from, from at least how we interpret some of the research, um, we believe that it's very important to keep organizing people in between as well, those moments uh, where, where, where there is um, a rise in interest in politics because there, there's a proposal of a particular legislation that is threatening our uh, liberties. And I think, you know, it, and from the research, what we've seen as well from Poland is that um, women, of course, and we, you know, we've talked about it, women are voting predominantly towards uh, left and more sort of uh, liberal policies. But at the same time, uh, we've also seen some research uh, showing that when when there is not that many protests, when when the level of activism sort of uh, falls down, um, the the kind of more damaging narratives start to uh, take over again very slowly. So I think it's quite important that to, to stress that organizing is the continuous process, and it has to happen in between as well. That's very interesting. Thank you. Um... I think you know uh, aside of the research as well. Well, we live in a society where women and gender non-conforming people are still discriminated against and they don't have equal access to opportunities. So that's another reason why we're focusing on these two groups. Yeah. I guess there's still that misconception, right? That, oh, as a woman, you're probably, there's an assumption that you're not interested in politics. I guess organizations like that, that really maybe just even focus on actually working against that narrative are already very important right because women don't hear that very often that it's actually you who are who we think can change so much so it's a very important message to hear i think yeah yeah of course now i mean i want to talk about the obvious question of brexit which has been kind of mentioned a few times already like settled status like i imagine the issues well i know for a fact the issues facing polish people in the uk but also to an extent like how we perceive ourselves have changed quite a lot over the past decade, right? Um, can you explain a little bit about sort of what's happening or the problems we are facing? I mean, aside of insecurity, because I think it was a, it was a, it was a huge shock for many uh, Polish citizens here in the UK. Uh, Brexit was a huge shock for us, um, and uh, and I think suddenly you felt quite safe. If you felt quite safe in this country, suddenly you know that might have been trashed. So, but I think as the deadline for most of the people to apply to EU settlement uh, scheme has passed last summer. So what we are now witnessing is that many Eastern European uh, citizens are losing um, the right to live and work in the UK. And that is a kind of very worrying, uh, very worrying uh, climate because many people, such as for example, the elderly people are not aware uh, that they don't have a status if they didn't apply, if no one told them that they should apply. and um, and they might face, uh, they might actually face deportation. And others, like the living carers, uh, are at risk of severe labor exploitation and modern day uh, slavery. So that's a very, uh, that's something that Natalia, uh, Natalia Bayer, she's our uh, 
EU uh, SS advisor. Uh, she's actually uh, researching quite a lot and she's in contact with a lot of uh, organizations that are supporting living carers. Um, and that's something that she often um, uh, reiterates that that becomes a problem today. I would say Brexit was bad and was shocking. And I'm going to make the argument that it is going to only get worse. Um, what we've seen this current government do not only during, not only in the aftermath, but during a global pandemic is introduce three, three separate bills into parliament that I would say veer on the, on the scale of like fascist and authoritarian, right? So we've got the elections bill, which is going to limit who is able to engage in democracy in this country. Um, there are already many organizations have for years been ringing the alarm about um, the potential for voter suppression with the introduction of voter ID laws through this bill. Um, we've got the, the Nationality and Borders Bill, which um, brilliantly passed with, uh, with most of Labour abstaining from, from the vote on it. Uh, the Nationality and Borders Bill is going to not only expand what is considered the, the hostile environment, so a set of policies that was, that was introduced actually a, almost in exactly a decade ago with, with Theresa May at the time as, as Home Secretary, um, expand policies that make it more difficult for migrants to access um, public funds, access the National Health Service, um, and, and ultimately be able to stay and work in this country. And then we've got the crime and sentencing bill, um, which is going to make it more difficult for us to dissent and to show our opposition and engage in protests and direct action, which is really the, the fundamental right of living in a democratic society. Um, so these bills are all publicly and sneakily being passed with very little opposition. Um, so I think we should be, we should be terribly worried that, um, what we're going to see kind of building off of Brexit and building off the last decade of the hostile environment is only going to get worse. <laughs> Not to make everyone panic, but I think it should be reason to, um, you know, to, to organize and, and to get involved with uh, local organizations wherever you are. Yeah, I think for a lot of people, like the moment of Brexit was a kind of wake up call. Um, you know, it, it wasn't for a lot of people who haven't paying attention, who have already seen like the hostile environment, he's seen those like authoritarian narratives creep in. But for a lot of people who are kind of tangentially involved, like Brexit was like a bell being like, well, we have to wake up. Like, it's just not the like progressive liberal country we thought we arrived in. I just want to say one point of frustration, because, you know, people ask me to, to speak about Polish politics. Right. And I was at an event in, in Liverpool. It was actually a drag show. And I gave this entire, I definitely not a performer. I had a, a little activist soapbox on stage. And so I got to say my five minutes, I was talking about the global rise of fascism, right? How what's happening in Poland is not just happening in Poland, it's happening in Hungary, it's happening in the US and in Brazil and in India here in the UK. And I had, a, I had this white English guy come up to me afterwards and looking very concerned. He's like, you know, so, so why do you think it's, it's so, it's particularly bad in Poland? Like, what is it about Poland that makes it, um, 
so easy for, for democratic rights to be undermined. And I'm like, didn't you hear, like the entire speech was about how it's not just, how it's not just Poland and how in fact it's quite dangerous for us to pathologize countries like Poland or Eastern Europe because it lets the, the quote unquote West off the hook, right? That it's, that, that it's easier to say, you know, poor Eastern Europea, poor Eastern Europe, so racist, so homophobic, right? Look at us here in the West, you know, we honor the rights of LGBTQ people. Um, you know, this is a country full of equality for all, but actually this is, this is happening everywhere, right? And these far right parties and campaigners are constantly sharing best practices across borders, right? I've seen the same kind of anti-abortion messaging in Poland as I've seen in the US, as I've seen in the UK. So it's really dangerous for us to just um, for, forget about the, the global power of this. And it's really, it, it's really comfortable, you know, to, to, to think about um, the problems that Poland might be facing politically, where we actually, you know, uh, and not see that people are being sent to Rwanda uh, I mean, that is, for me, this is a horrendous <laughs> breach of human rights. Uh, it's, it's like at the top of, you know, what one could imagine. And yet this is happening in the UK. Yeah, so it has a different image because it's happening in a country that's like seen as part of the like developed West, right? It's mm -hmm. sort of like, you know, if, if that was happening in, in Eastern Europe, you would, you would hope that, well, well, actually not share the more outrage, but like, I can imagine making news headlines just being like, oh, the Polish government, the Hungarian government is like coming up saying more and more horrendous. Whereas in the UK, it's just like, oh, you know, it's a, it's a like development plan. It's a partnership, like all these like cuddly language around it. Yeah, and I think th these bills that Magena was talking about and the hostile policies that the current government is introducing, uh, Pretty Patel as a, as a figure, really, uh, all of this, shows that yes this is the problem that is happening here it's not only uh when you look at the other countries and actually we should be trying to think why why as, as you say Majana, why is it that it's getting strength why is it that we can um see that actually certain situations get worse not better because there's also this assumption of progress that just happens on its own linearly and that's not the case. And I think, you know, I very recently was actually focusing on, um, on what's going on in states around abortion rights and uh, Roe v. Wade, um, because obviously there's a, there's a risk it's going to be repelled. And the, the thing about Roe v. Wade is that why is it that the 50-year-old precedent based on some kind of privacy law is what protects the right of to abortion, right? And, and I think that also shows like, we might think that these rights are well protected, but actually they're not. And in terms of access and in terms of even legal, um, legal status. And in, in the UK, actually, abortion law is not also great. So, I mean, a lot of people just don't think about it. It's, it's not what we are supposed to be focusing on. Yeah, yeah, and, and like the other obvious one is is trans rights. I mean, we kind of touched on it like two episodes ago. But when I'm seeing what the government is saying, or what even like you know a lot of like liberal polite media is saying these days in the UK, it sounds a lot like what they're saying about gay people in Poland, like talking about dangerous ideology, things like that, warning about they're coming for our children. Like it is, it is really, really horrible, like fascistic language in many cases. So. I think the 
I think some of these conservative and far right movements are incredibly creative at, at um, kind of limiting not just the rights of certain groups, but the rights of everyone. You know, I think the, the U.S. is such an interesting example to look at because what um, with trans rights, I mean, in, in the U.S. it happened around these quote unquote bathroom bills, right? Um, sneaky kind of state level legislation that would you know, dictate who is able to use what bathroom. Um, and it's interesting because these, these were largely led by conservative, like evangelical campaigners, but they've kind of made strange bedfellows with um, people who you would normally see in more centrist spaces. So, so in some cases, like anti-trans feminists um, and women who normally would be standing up for abortion rights saying my body, my choice, suddenly when it came to trans people, um, that kind, those kinds of rights were not um, extended. But what happened in the US is that they went state by state with these bathroom bills. And not only would, it, would, would the legislation be focused on that one issue around you know, trans access to bathrooms, but they would suddenly be sticking like minimum, like trying to, to um, prevent uh, cities from passing minimum wage increases. So these were almost like Frankenstein bills, but it was a really creative tactic because people, people would think that they're voting on one issue, but actually it's this whole suite of legislation um, that, that would not only limit the rights of trans people or LGBTQ people, but also working class people. Um, so I think that the right has gotten incredibly creative. Um, and I think this is where uh, we on the left and as progressive movements need to do better um, to kind of see the connections and organize across borders. But I think this is also, you know, where solidarity comes uh, to play and organizations like Migrants Organize that supported us quite a lot at the beginning of our journey. Um, they organize around the Solidarity Knows No Border Network with a lot of organizations across the UK. And, and it's an exercise in standing uh, for one another. So, you know, if we protest outside of the Polish embassy for the reproductive rights in Poland, well, then maybe we should also stand in solidarity with against the hostile environment outside of the home office. And, you know, and, and that way we build power because I, when I came to the UK, I was not allowed to work full time, you know, um, it was, but then, then, then the law has changed because Poland joined European Union and now, you know, we have Brexit. So the law again has changed. So I, I, I always kind of want to remember that or remind that laws are there to be changed. They are changing, but what is there, what is constant and, you know, is the power that we, that we have and that kind of collective power we have. And if we use that power, we can change the law and we can stop those horrible hostile um, environment policies from actually going any further. But if we don't, if we stay inactive, if we don't, if we don't get politically active as migrants, then this is going to get worse. So if we imagine ourselves in five years time, it could be better or it could be worse, depending on where we stand now. If we stand in solidarity with others or if we sit back and watch. So beautifully said. Uh, and I think what it also shows uh, 
Pomoc to be, it's not only what people might assume, okay, it's a Polish migrants organization, so probably the only focus is on their own rights. Um, they want to just um, and if, uh, yeah, try to, again, building you know, on those stereotypical uh, ideas, there might, there might be like a conception, okay, they probably just want to steal more jobs and they want to uh, kind of feel more comfortable here as if it's their own home where it's not really. But what, what comes out of this conversation is actually that we are organizing for things that a lot of British people will, will benefit from. <laughs> it's not that we just focus on, on what, what is like needed. I mean, that also these fights are not separate. Whatever that <laughs> helps migrants is not against <laughs> people who are here. But um, I think this also shows how, how big potential there is because it's also sometimes maybe just easier to see the problem if you are not so, it's not, not so normalized for you. And when you suddenly kind of face it and then that picture of the perfect Western country is um, destroyed. It's interesting what you say. There are some, uh, we've met some uh, usually young people that come here from Poland and, and they idealize UK. And then, you know, you kind of um, take them outside of the home office to join a protest and they are like, oh shit, I wasn't aware of that. Oh my God, this is happening here. Oh, this is horrible. And I think, you know, part of the role of organizations like ours is to actually uh, draw those connections. Well, you know, what is happening in Poland, in Białowieża, uh, this is actually happening here, you know, on the shores of the UK and also, you know, in the kind of, uh, drafts, uh, you know, Pretty Patel's drafts at the Home Office. So, you know, it's it's a role of our organizations to kind of show that the problem you have somewhere, it's actually part of a bigger injustice. And how do we tackle it collectively? How we draw connections? How we organize against it? It's it's part of our work. I think one important thing to note is that the, the kind of um, like divide and conquer tactics that this government has um or the uk has really employed since since the times of colonialism is something that is so prevalent in our social movements and and the kind of nonprofit sector in this country and i do think um there's been a massive disservice done in you know when brexit happened in not not connecting the dots between the rights of EU citizens and the hostile environment and the rights of migrants in this country. Um, because we just had millions of people who have gone through this shared experience of having their status change from one day to the next. One of the most shocking things, and I hadn't heard you say this before, Magda, that, that since you came to the UK, your status changed three different times as an immigrant. And that to me was like, gosh, the, the kind of insecurity and instability that that creates. But I think the, the point about solidarity is so critical. How can, we, how can we use opportunities of this kind of horrible thing such as Brexit happening to then build camaraderie between different migrant groups rather than create hierarchies and recreate state categories, right? Because really the government it's the government who calls you an asylum seeker. It's the government who says, if you're a refugee, this is what you're entitled to. 
and I, I think we need to kind of break, break away from that and take control of the narrative a bit better. Yeah, yeah, those are like really, really excellent points. Thank you for that. I know we've been going for well over an hour. I don't want to take up much too of your time, but I think there's a, a few kind of quick questions to maybe finish on. Uh, something slightly different. So um, creativity seems to be important to many people involved in Pomos. And, uh, you know, you have quite a lot of activists with artistic backgrounds. Um, was that a kind of conscious choice? And uh, do you think like art and culture can be used to engage people who might not otherwise uh, listen if you talk about politics? It's interesting you ask that question because quite a lot of us at Pomots actually has uh, either art or drama background. Um, we've seen art as being very effective where you work, uh, when you organize communities, um, sort of grassroots uh, at different, in Poland and here in the UK as well. And I think one of the nice things that you can do with art is to talk about very complex things in a, in a, in a kind of like a more accessible way. So for example, uh, when we uh, organized around Roma issues in Poland, that was pre-POMOS, um, it was very difficult to create a meeting between the local authorities and the Roma community, but we decided to actually uh, create a sort of like a performance uh, inside the gallery that was a closed performance and we've invited members of the Roma community and the local authorities and also um, the members of the church and so on and so on. And they all came because they thought that it was, um, it was a kind of, in a way for them, maybe safer space, not that serious uh, space. Uh, so they, they, they kind of um, took off in a way that sort of, you know, um, official uniform that they might have and, 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 and were a bit more open to talk about uh, some of those issues and that kind of built relationship between the Roma and the local authorities and then allowed for better housing for them and so on and so on. So we see this as a kind of a space where, where you can do this. And also I think, you know, politics are sometimes perceived as very boring and, uh, and people don't want to engage and especially younger people or people that come from creative sectors. So, you know, we believe that you can uh, talk about politics through drag, you can talk about politics through creative workshops. And that also allows us to reach out beyond uh, the kind of networks of those that are already converted, that are already interested in politics to reach new audiences. Um, and that, that, that is a very kind of effective way. I don't know, Marjana, if you want to add anything to this. I am a massive pop culture junkie, film, cinema, uh, gaming, anything. And I, I would absolutely agree with Magda to say that I think sometimes, especially when it comes to like social justice topics, we think that we need to hit people over the head with facts, right? And if we just, if people just consume enough facts about what's happening, it's going to convince them that this is the priority and this is what they should be focusing on and this is how they should be thinking. And I think pop culture, I think, I think fiction, I think kind of creative mediums for, for, for stories and for storytelling um, are really, really effective in being able to create space for people to engage, as Magda said, with tough issues, right? It could be migration, it could be, um, you know, it could be uh, just the normalization of LGBTQ identity, it could be abortion rights, it could be, you know, the history of colonialism in the UK. And I think especially now, it's, it's like we've had so many exciting um, cultural shifts in the UK that we could be and should be building on. Um, you know, I'm, I'm just kind of thinking of a few really 
monumental pop culture pieces in this country. Um, you know, just to make a note, like Steve McQueen's Small Axe, which is an incredible five-part um, anthology about uh, kind of the history of racism in the UK, but told through a completely like black British, black immigrant lens. It's a Sin by Russell T Davies. Um, similarly, similarly a, a show about um, kind of the HIV AIDS epidemic in the UK. But you know, both of these kind of dispel this myth of, um, you know, British history just being told through this white middle-class heterosexual male lens which you know happens tends to happen if if all you're consuming is Downton Abbey, right? Um, but so I think there are really creative ways that we could be talking about very tough issues, and really like our brains are so hardwired for for stories and storytelling, not just facts. That I think it would be a real missed opportunity if we weren't using art and culture um, for social change. Uh, research has shown that people need to feel uh, in order to change. They need to feel certain emotions and that motivates them to change. So an art is amazing actually a uh, tool to make people feel, to create experiences that are political education experiences, which, which allow people to feel uh, particular emotions, to feel anger, to feel happiness, to feel uh, excitement, uh, to feel curiosity. And then this then leads to change. They then want to change their behaviors because they, they understand that this is uh, important. And this is this is organizing and this is community care. I mean, I'm sure you've talked about the war in Ukraine extensively on this podcast, but I think I think as Polish people and as Eastern Europeans, we could all acknowledge our disappointment with the Western left, um, specifically the the Western anti-war movement. Um, you know, we had organized a, a vigil for Ukraine um, with the Ukrainian community here in Liverpool, and we had like 200 people out in front of the the kind of historic bombed out church in the city center it was really really amazing and we managed to pull off quite a feat which is that we got activists and community members on completely opposing political sides to all speak at this one protest um i didn't know what was going to happen from one moment to the next as i was you know, as, as the mic was shaking in my hand and I was passing it on to each speaker, I'm like, is this going to be a conspiracy theory or is this going to be something else? So luckily, nothing like that happened. But one really disappointing moment, and I will just I will name it, but someone from Stop the War Coalition spoke and they said publicly while having a whole group of, of people from Ukraine crying and grieving and enraged, say, but Ukraine must remain neutral. And she kind of turned her head and looked at the Ukrainian community members. And I'm like, that's really, that's not your space to dictate the rage or the anger that people might feel. Like we have to be able to hold space, as Magda said, for a full range of emotions and, and also to really center the experiences of the people who are closest to the oppression, right? That is, that is on us. We have to be creating spaces where people who are marginalized can, can be able to dictate the agenda. Um, yeah, so I just wanted to say that on the topic of emotions. <laughs> I'm, just, I'm just, you know, uh, clapping here, but you can't hear because I'm on mute, but thank you so much uh, for 
for saying that and for also telling us about that protest and um, very, yeah. Uh, so I guess the last question, uh, just to maybe close, we always have this tradition to, clo to close on the nice note. And I feel like after all you've said, there's a lot to be hopeful about in terms of like, how do you, you know, envision Pomots in a few years? What's uh, maybe the one change you would like to see the most? Open borders. I'd like all the borders to be open. <laughs> but I that is not... Yeah, I can, I can yeah. get behind that. Yeah. Yeah. But that, <laughs> I'm also that... clapping here. <laughs> but uh, but uh, in terms of our organization, okay, uh, as well. Well, I, I, I guess how I would like to see POMODs, um, we already see POMODs uh, uh, decentralizing and operating in different um, areas of the UK. So we have uh, now a hub in London, we have one in Birmingham, uh, a very active one in Liverpool, and a small one in Portsmouth. Uh, and I think the way I would like to see POMODs in a few years is to have many more of those hubs uh, that are um, that are operating through uh, local activists, local organizers, um, and based on their ideas as well. Uh, places where where we listen to people and where we devise uh, strategies based on what is the local need. I would say that I would love to see within the next few years. Polish activists and Polish migrants embedded in all major social movements in this country, whether that's, you know, for workers' rights, whether that's the fight against hostile environments. Um, I want us to have real political power, um, the kind of political power that can get really awful politicians out and really amazing politicians in, um, especially those who, who have lived experience and, and who come from our from, from our communities, from migrant communities. And I would also like to see more solidarity so that if, you know, we have a, a deportation flight going to Rwanda, for example, um, I want to see our Polish community members on the streets, right? That we put out a call and people and people come out because they recognize that their that their freedom and their liberation is tied is tied to the to the people they live with, um, whether they look like them or not. And so that is what what I would like to see. I think. And um, and finally, if people are inspired, as I'm sure many of you will, by what you said, if they want to get involved, follow you, support you, where can they find you? Well, they can find us on social media. If they want to get in touch with us through social media, we are on Instagram, TikTok, Facebook, and Twitter. Uh, they can also send an email to us. It's info at pomods.org.uk. Uh, they can also... Find your website, I guess. <laughs> uh, they can find our website. Uh, that's true. Uh, the website is in its making. So we are now updating the website. Uh, currently, it doesn't have all our projects there. It's mostly focused around direct support. Um, but soon uh, we will have uh, up and running a new website. Um, either way, you can contact us through the existing website. And also, you can also, uh, you know, when you contact us, then you, then you can meet us in person as well, whether it's in London, uh, Liverpool or Birmingham. 
Or if you're in some random place, you know, we'll, yeah. we'll, we'll find a way to meet you. That's how I discovered you. <laughs> I just went to some protest and you were there <laughs> and we started talking. So definitely just show up on protests for migrants' rights or against deportation and you'll surely see Pomods there. And we have very nice logo that stands out. <laughs> <laughs> we're also we're also doing intensive canvassing right now door to door so you might see us on your doorstep in the coming weeks who knows yes. you, you <laughs> might see me Magda Eva or <laughs> Hannah on your doorstep <laughs> yeah we're, we're, we're coming for you we'll be knocking on your door right right thank you thank you so much for your time that thank was you. a that was a really enjoyable enlightening chat um Something I never say, but I feel like I should be saying if if you enjoy this episode, please share with your friends, um, retweet, like, subscribe, leave <laughs> us a rating. Uh, we are beginners. We have no advertising budget or celebrity endorsements. So we count on you to help spread the word. Thank you. And thanks for listening. Bye. Bye.